I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, a counterintuitive argument for big business. They'd spend more money on environmental protection. They export more. They're more innovative. They, they injure their workers less. They hire more women and minorities and veterans. So the, the narrative is really completely opposite of what the reality is. Then how incredible precision changed our world. So we know when the Industrial Revolution started, May the 4th, 1776, and that was also the birth of precision, which was the key to the revolution. Plus, a look at our brains shows we're a lot more like our friends than we thought. So what kinds of similarities determine friendship formation and what kinds of things become more similar among friends over time? That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In 1953, a man named Charles Wilson found himself giving very tense testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee. Wilson had been nominated by President Eisenhower to be Secretary of Defense, which should have been routine enough, except there was something about his resume that seemed, to some, a little suspect. And it was this. At the time that he was nominated, he was the CEO of General Motors. Beyond that, to the dismay of some on the committee, he owned 39,477 shares of GM stock. One senator pressed Wilson on this, wanting to know if he had to make a decision which could hurt GM or its stock price, could he make that decision? What Wilson said back to the senator has been quoted and misquoted ever since he said it. He said he could not imagine such a conflict of interest, quote, because for years I thought what was good for our country was good for General Motors and vice versa. You know, in the 50s, 60s, even 70s, you had CEOs who were largely took themselves seriously as statesmen. And most of them were men at the time, uh, statespeople. Robert Atkinson is the president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank. He's worked with both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. As representatives, not just of their company, but as Americans, as helping out the country. And there was seen as an alignment between the interests of corporations and the country. Atkinson argues that alignment has largely unaligned, at least in the minds of many Americans. You often hear important politicians say things like this. We've got to make sure we are not the party of big business, big banks, big Wall Street bailouts, big corporate loopholes, big anything. Probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you that was Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Only I wouldn't tell you that because it wasn't. It was former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, a dedicated conservative. But both might agree, big is not better. A lot of conservatives, particularly nowadays, as opposed to, say, pre-1994 conservatives who were more aligned in the notion of country club Republicans, more aligned with seeing that big corporations were a force for uh, progress in American greatness. They're more uh, economic libertarian, sort of in the Adam Smith kind of world, where in, in their view, the optimal economy is made up of small little businesses where there's no pro- profit 
uh, you know, very low profits, very low market power, and and they don't need government for anything, and they don't lobby government for anything. Mm. And so you can have small government, small firms, and just sort of like the some of the founders, not all of them, like Jefferson, uh, thought was the ideal. So for mm. them, it's sort of this utopian ideal, uh, which is uh, unrealistic, of course. For the, some on the left, particularly the progressive left, um, their view of, is, is that large corporations are the capitalists. They're the ones making all the money. Uh, and, and we have to segment out small business as part of the proletariat, if you will. And so it's now small business gets to be seen as kind of just like workers. They're also victimized and oppressed by the large corporate community. And, and therefore, we should demonize and, and work against big corporations. That's largely how it plays out. The bottom line is lots of people are in agreement about the harm big businesses do to America. And we've talked with a lot of people on this show about some of those adverse effects. From David Wessel at the Brookings Institution. There are fewer employers and the big employers dominate. And there is a growing body of evidence that this is reducing wages. To Elizabeth Hinton at Harvard. So when people who are incarcerated call home, um, spending like $8 for a minute to talk to their family. So it's a very exploitive and extractive industry. To Robert Lustig at the University of California, San Francisco. They make money by using commodity crops that are subsidized in order to make processed food, which is killing us. The problem, according to Robert Atkinson, is that the story of big business is a little bit more complicated. He says the data shows that, on average, large companies are quite good for America. And in the age of huge mergers, America is often very good for big business. Which brings us back to Charles Wilson, the CEO of GM, telling senators, hey, don't worry, what's good for the country is good for GM and vice versa. That wasn't seen as anomalous at the time, and now it would be. So the corporate community has a lot to explain, if you will. You know, they, they could have done a better job of keeping up their reputation. Having said that, there's still a lot of really good things companies do on average that we shouldn't lose sight of. Atkinson writes about those things in the new book, Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. And he says that he and his co-author, Michael Lind, have watched anger against big companies grow over the past few years. Though it's crucial to say up front, he doesn't argue that big companies are saints. He thinks they've become too beholden to the Wall Street establishment. They've embraced short-termism, and they've catered to a customer base that wants everything to be cheaper, which tends to push jobs overseas. But even so, at the end of the day, you've got to go back to the actual data and ask, what do the numbers show? How do big companies really stack up? How are these companies doing in terms of paying wages or or exporting or or protecting their workers or giving their workers benefits? Uh, And it turns out when you look at all of these factors, as we do in the book, on average, large companies significantly outperform small companies when it comes to improving the quality of life. They spend more money on environmental protection. They export more. They're more innovative. They, they injure their workers less. They hire more women and minorities and veterans. Uh, so the, the narrative is really completely opposite of, of what the reality is. And so that inspired us to write the book. Hmm. At what point, by the way, does a small company cross into becoming a big company? How big do they have to be? 
Well, it's kind of strange. We have we have this small business bureaucracy. So we have a we have an entire government agency designed to help small business called right. the Small Business Administration. Right. We we quote a scholar in our book. You you can really see how tilted this is because you can't imagine a, a U.S. government agency called the Large Business a- Agency. <laughs> it wouldn't <laughs> Just, be popular, I think. It uh, wouldn't when be you try popular. To establish it. Right, the LBA, uh, but the under the SBA rules to qualify for all of these perks that that you qualify for if you're small, like government loans or government, for, you know, subsidized contracts and things like that. They have different definitions. So, like like uranium mines are bigger than say uh, car dealers, but on average, it's a generally 500 workers. And okay. So if you employ more than 500, you're seen as big, and less you're seen as small. Um, you know, you talked about that hypothetical large business administration, um, even though obviously we do have a small business administration. But doesn't that make sense? I mean, like small business, your local pizza parlor or ice cream shop, they don't have the wherewithal to have like the lobbyists and the accountants and the lawyers that that an ExxonMobil would have. So it seems like, of course, they need the extra help. Well, so there's a difference between it, well, there's two things. One is they actually do have lobbyists. They're called groups like the NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, an incredibly powerful lobby in Washington. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. they're powerful, first of all, they have a lot of money. But the other reason they're powerful is they have members in every single congressional district, lots and lots of members. And so, you know, what does a member of Congress worry about when they're taking a tough vote or, 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 or you know, taking any other kind of action. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things they worry about, sure, is campaign contributions. But a much bigger thing they worry about are, are, am I going to get votes at home? And so if they cross the NFIB or other sorts of small business lobbies like the National Association of Realtors or the Beer Wholesalers or all these groups, you know, they know that they're going to have grassroots opposition in in the next uh, November election. So that's that's one point. Hmm. The second point is it would be fine if if SBA, uh, the Small Business Administration, just said, we want to make sure that when you pass a federal regulation that it doesn't unfairly target small companies. Okay, I would be okay with that. That's actually not the case. Like, for example, the SBA regulation exemption that we cite in the book about how if you're a small aircraft repair company, you're exempted from some of the regulations that Mm -hmm. a large aircraft repair company would. So we're saying that aircraft safety of the consumers, of the flyers, is less important than helping some small little repair company. So... Sure, the regulations should be equal. They shouldn't certainly, Mike and I argue in the book, we're not against small business. We're just saying let's have size neutrality. Hmm. So uh, let me back up for a second because you talked about how like on almost every measure that, you know, people might think about wages and productivity and environmental protection and exporting and innovation and all these things, employment diversity, um, large businesses outperform small businesses. And I think a lot of people would hear that and think, that's crazy, isn't it? Large businesses that have been contributing to inequality and hiring lobbyists and paying people as little as possible and sort of thinking about the next quarter on Wall Street instead of really like long-term thinking that will help all their workers. I can just imagine that's what people are thinking. What's your response to that? Well, 
we make it pretty clear in the book, we're, this is not a defense of, of all corporations, nor is it a defense of sort of how the big business community in the United States has conducted itself in the last 20 years. But that doesn't mean that when you, again, look at the data, um, you know, for, for example, if you're a worker in a large company, you, you get 85% more bonuses, you get 2.5 times more paid leave, you're much more likely to get retirement, you're much more likely to get parental leave, uh, disability insurance. I mean, these are all real things, mm-hmm. and, and we shouldn't sort of pretend they don't exist. So let me ask you a little bit about that that issue of wages and and, uh, and compensation. There was uh, a study out of Stanford, Berkeley, and the Social Security Administration, and they found, this is a quote, Yes, large companies used to pay more, but over the last 30 years, that's changed. They don't really pay much at all anymore. You want to do you feel like this used to be a feature of large companies, but, you know, as they've got more competitive and outsource things, they're really not paying very good wages anymore? Sure. So that uh, that study actually came out after we published our book. So, uh, but I have read the study, and and actually, what they what they really say is that the the wage premium has fallen. So the wage premium they argue was, uh, you know, sort of thirty five percent twenty years ago, and they argue but you <clears throat> used to make thirty five percent more if you worked for a big company than a little yeah, company. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And by the way, all of this is all on average. Not to say that some small companies wouldn't be better and big sure. on average. Sure. And what they found is that it's fallen to twenty five percent. Uh, you know, more recently. So, sure, it's fallen, uh, partly because of more competition, more global competition, uh, uh, outsourcing and other factors, no question. But I wouldn't, if I'm a worker, I would not sneeze at a 25% wage premium. And, and by the way, one important thing to remember with that, too, and, and, the, and the authors actually acknowledge that this could be a factor in there, as healthcare costs have gone up, you know, much, much faster than the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. uh, big companies are... Uh, you know, for example, 97% of companies with um, more than 200 employees were offering health care before the Affordable Care Act compared to about only half of the small companies. Huh. So as health care costs have gone up, a lot of their what used to go in the form of compensation, um, sort of the surplus compensation or benefit has shifted over to health care. Hmm. So that's to me, you know, 25% wage premium and health care. Uh, that's pretty good. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Robert Atkinson. He's president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation and co-author of Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. Um, One of the other points that you mentioned that you feel like, okay, this is where big companies also do a better job than small companies is on the environmental front. Um, But we have seen huge spills in rivers or uh, the Exxon Valdez spill off the coast of Alaska how do you know that large companies are really better than small companies? Sure. I, I think one of the problems in the entire sort of debate or discussion about this, and it's, it's just sort of in, inherent to the, to the way we, uh, we report on this, uh, is, you know, if a small little uh, company that's, uh, you know, uh, coating and treating uh, metal and, and it's, it's dumping uh, the, the toxic waste uh, out their back door into a little creek, 
probably they're not going to get caught, number one, because the, the enforcement and inspection rates for small uh, metal platers or other firms are very, very limited. Uh, mm -hmm. they, 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 the regulators really focus their efforts on, on large firms. So they're probably not even going to get caught. But even if they got caught and it got in the papers, it, it's not going to make the New York Times or the Washington Post. It mm -hmm. might make the local newspaper if you're lucky. So there's we have sort of this biased perception that it's big firms that are the scoff laws. And, and Certainly, some of them have been. I mean, I'm like BP, you know, yeah. clearly the BP, you know, the broke deep the water rules. horizon, I think. Of yeah, that deep, deep water horizon. Yeah. It's terrible, terrible. And they deserved what they got in terms of fines and the like. So I'm not defending them. But, you know, we see that and we think that's emblematic. But again, how do we know this? We reviewed a number of very good scholarly peer-reviewed studies that were not paid for by industry, and um, and they rely in part on government reporting data from the census. But you know, just one good statistic: um, large plants, which are tend to be large firms, spend more, four times more on air pollution control per dollar of sales than small firms do. Hmm. Uh, they, so, you know, and, and think about the reason too for that is you know if you're a big firm. And that's not to say that some big firms aren't aren't dumb uh, and and make mistakes as they do. But by and large, if you're a big firm, you have a reputation to uphold. And and if it looks like you're a scoff law or you're polluting, you know, consumer boycotts are very real. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, shareholder pressures are very real. So there's a lot of incentive just for that. Uh, and then secondly. Uh, as I said before, the, the odds of getting uh, inspected by an air pollution regulator or a, um, an OSHA safety worker safety regulator, much, much higher if you're a large firm. Do you feel like there's any way in which small businesses are better than big businesses? Like, did you, in all your research, stumble across something where you thought, yep, small businesses kind of have an edge here? You know, it's funny. There, We, we, we listed maybe... 12, 15 factors on where there, there are things to compare apples to apples on. And there were really only two that we thought were somewhat close to being a tie. Uh, one was on inequality, which again, is that most people think big businesses are the source of inequality. When you really look at some of the data we were able to get, including some unpublished data from the Department of Labor, it suggests actually that they're about the same. Uh, their inequality is about the same in big companies and small companies. So mm -hmm. there, I would say, okay, it's a tie. Uh, and the second would be on jobs. Um, that's really the ace in the hole for a lot of small business advocates. Oh, we create all these jobs. They do create a lot of jobs, but they also destroy a lot of jobs. So there's a, a good study. Um, I think it's a Harvard, uh, sorry, an MIT study, uh, which we cite in the book. And it shows that uh, if you trace all firms uh, from their year of birth, that they create a lot of jobs in their first year, but then if you track all of them after that, so all the firms created in, let's say, 1998 or 2002, uh, they lose jobs every other year until year 22. You, you said, I think, that income inequality is about the same in small and big firms, right? Yes. Now, on its face, that seems wrong because, you know, to to, to pick a company— the CEO of Ford, I'm sure, makes, I, I would think, hundreds of times probably, many, many, many times, let's say, what somebody on an assembly line making a Ford uh, makes. Whereas in a pizza parlor, in a hair, you know, a hairdresser shop, whatever, the person who owns it doesn't make that much more than the person who works there. I mean, they may make double or triple, but we're not talking 50 times more. Sure. So part of this is about definition and how you define inequality. And, and, and 
one definition is what's called the 90-10 ratio. So you take the people in the 90th percentile, the top 10% of earners in any firm, and then you take the people in the 10%, the bottom 10%, and you look at how unequal they are. And it appears there that it's pretty much the same. The 90-10 ratio is the same for big firms and small firms. I haven't been able to find data on, on the, the 199, in other words, the, the, the top 1% of earners in a firm versus everybody else. Huh, okay. My guess is if you looked at that, you would see inequality, uh, more inequality, because the big firms, you know, they, they pay their CEOs and others a lot of money, probably too much money. Right. But what we forget about that is there's a group of companies called S-Corps uh, or, 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 or other kinds of corporate forms who uh, are counted oftentimes as small businesses. And they there are some of those people who make a lot of money. I mean, like you know, millions and millions of dollars a year as the CEO of a firm of 200 people. So we shouldn't forget that. Hmm. Finally, I just wonder, you know, a lot of people who advocate for small businesses say, like, make sure you shop at small businesses and you don't just go to the big box stores or order from Amazon or whatever it is. Do you and your purchases think at all about trying to help out big businesses? <laughs> Uh, I do. I am as Amazon Prime member, and my wife and I just seem like that's that's all we do these days. But it is not out of any particular desire to help Amazon. It's out of a particular desire to not get in my car and drive in Washington traffic. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. And I think that again, what we really argue is you know size neutrality. If, if there's a small company that can give me what I want and at a, at a great price or convenience, or wonderful. But if a big company can do it, that's great too. One of the reasons why, by the way, people advocate for that is they have this view that, well, we want to keep the money locally. And, and there's no question that small companies will keep more money locally. Mm -hmm. But imagine if everybody does that. So, you know, okay, so the, the people in Milwaukee decide they're only going to shop at local business, but that means that the companies in Cleveland are going to have less business and the companies in St. Louis are going to have less business. And so they're hurt. So if everybody takes this view, we're only going to shop locally, it's a prisoner's dilemma and, and everybody essentially is hurt. So you're not, yeah, if you want to be selfish about it, say, I'm helping my community. Sure. There's also a very good study we cited there that many of these buy local campaigns, they, they actually don't really help the people they think they're helping, which are generally low. The, the notion is you're helping low and moderate income people. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out you're actually helping somewhat advantaged business owners. Robert Atkinson is president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. He's co-author of the new book, Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business Robert, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. It's my pleasure. If you want to take a look at some of the hard numbers on big businesses versus small businesses when it comes to pay, healthcare, diversity, all that, we've got them for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Some problems are easy to solve, some not so much. In the middle of World War II, a British soldier was given a problem that ultimately he did solve, but he had a heck of a time doing it. The problem was this. British guns were jamming out in the field. Why? No one in the British military had any idea. And it's important to note that jamming happened to some soldiers and not others, and to some guns and not others. So the man tasked with solving this problem, his last name was Povey, set out on a long journey. 
He started, as you might expect, at the beginning, the factory where the bullets were being made, which was in Detroit. And he arrived in Detroit with some very precise measuring tools to do some very precise measurements. But the factory did not seem to be the problem. The bullets were exact in their measurements, and they worked perfectly in the guns that the soldiers carried. So Povey kept following the bullets on their journey. They went by train from Detroit to the East Coast, and Povey took their measurements again in case the train ride had altered them. But it hadn't. Then they went by ship across the Atlantic. It was a stormy ride, and when Povey pulled out his super precise equipment, he realized that the rocking of the ship did slightly, so slightly he had to enlist his special tools, change the shape of some of the bullets. How? Well, the bullets were inside boxes, which were all stacked themselves into a bigger box, kind of like squares in a Rubik's Cube, and the bullets that were on the outside of the cube, the ones that banged into the wooden boxes, those few bullets got misshapen and jammed the soldiers' guns. Povey had solved the mystery, and he seems to have celebrated by doing some exploring in North Africa, at least for a while. He got bored eventually, found himself in Timbuktu, managed to bribe with a number of bottles of whiskey his way on a U.S. Air Force flight to Miami and got back to where he was temporarily based in Washington, D.C., to find that he had been declared missing, presumed dead. That's Simon Winchester, author of a number of books, including Krakatoa and The Professor and the Madman. And all his clothes had been given away to somebody else, and his unit had been moved to Baltimore. That story, told to him by Povey's son, inspired Winchester to write a book about precision. It's called The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. In it, he tells the story of people who were profoundly influential, but most of us have never heard of. People like John Wilkinson, an 18th century industrialist who loved iron. He had an iron boat, an iron desk, and he wanted to be buried in an iron coffin. Uh, He was something of a lunatic as well, I think, an amiable lunatic. But Wilkinson also changed the world, and he did it when he committed to filling an order in the spring of 1776 for a man named James Watt. Watt wanted iron cylinders for something he'd created, a steam engine. Once Watt had seen what Wilkinson could do and make a cylinder which made the steam engine work perfectly and powerfully, he ordered 500 of them, a huge order, which made Wilkinson a very wealthy man. But it really kick-started the Industrial Revolution. So we know when the Industrial Revolution started, May the 4th, 1776, and that was also the birth of precision, which was the key to the revolution. Precision, of course, defines our world, even if we barely give it a second thought. And it has defined Simon Winchester's world more than most, since his father was a precision engineer. He made tiny electric motors for the Royal Navy, which were used in the guidance systems of torpedoes. And very occasionally he'd take me to a factory and I'd see men working away, creating tiny little gear wheels, and it was all a bit bewildering to me. Much of what Winchester's father did was secret because he worked with the military. But the author remembers beginning to understand the power of precision in a visceral way. One evening in the 1950s when he was a kid, it was almost dinner time, and he and his mother were waiting for his father to come home. And he came home with this beautiful wooden box with his name on a little brass plaque on the top of it, B.A.W. Winchester Esquire. Inside were all sorts of little metal objects, over a hundred rods, squares, oblongs. And Winchester's father told his son he wanted to show him something. 
So he took two of the largest cubes, put them together to show they were clearly not magnetic, and then he did the big reveal. And he said, okay, so now you've seen this, I'm going to put one on top of the other, and he did. And he said, now pick up the top one. And I picked up the top one, but the bottom one came with it as well. And I thought, that's a bit odd because they're not magnetic. Mm -hmm. So I held the bottom one with my right hand, top one with my left hand, and tried to pull them apart. It proved impossible. No matter how hard I struggled, I could not separate these two blocks. And my father took them and said, OK, that's what I wanted to show you, because it's easy to separate them by sliding one off the other. It's a process called ringing. But it's impossible to pluck them from each other because... They are so perfectly flat. There are no asperities in the surface that cause any air to leak in and make points of weakness. And the molecules actually bond together. So very briefly, the two pieces of metal actually become one. And this notion of extraordinary flatness, which is a key to precision engineering, an absolutely fundamental aspect of it, has remained with me ever since, Hmm. thanks to my father. That's amazing. So before we dive into some stories, some more stories about uh, precision engineering, we've both kind of alluded to this, but like, talk about how precision is all around us, um, even if we don't pay any attention to it and it's just not something that registers with us or matters but just explain like in a normal person's life who's not an engineer where precision factors in it seems to be a word commonly used every day in advertising to suggest something of of high value of Mm -hmm. impeccable standard i mean we look by motor car tires that are precision engineered. We buy a wristwatch, you know, precision gear wheels inside it. We buy binoculars, precision glassware. Mm-hmm. So the, the connotation is precision is a thoroughly good thing and ubiquitous. Almost everything we buy. I mean, no one would buy anything that's, uh, you know, said to be imprecise right. or inaccurate. <laughs> it's not like your best advertising slogan. This is good, but kind of imprecise. I think if you'll indulge me for a second just to explain the difference between precision and accuracy. Sure. Um, important, once again, rather like flatness, important concept. Accuracy, if you can imagine a dartboard and you're firing darts or arrows or bullets at it, your intention is to hit the bull in the centre. And if you do that, in other words, if you achieve your intention, you've achieved high accuracy. If you fire your bullets or your arrows or whatever at the dartboard, and they all hit, let's say, 10 o'clock. In other words, not necessarily the bull, but every single shot of yours hits exactly the same place, time after time after time after time. That you have achieved is great precision. It's doing the same thing endlessly, repetitiously. Mm -hmm. And the concept that bleeds out of that is the making of interchangeable parts, making components where everyone is exactly the same. Mm. So that's precision. If you can achieve precision and accuracy, that's absolutely top-notch. But accuracy and precision, at least to an engineer, are subtly different. And that point about being able to do things over and over again is very much related to the Wilkinson story. And that, like, as you say, it's all about interchangeability, interchangeable parts. So in our world today, if a remote control doesn't work and we put in a different AA battery or... You know, if you've got a fancy razor and it breaks and and you replace the part, we assume, of course, it's going to work. It's like the whole point of interchangeable parts. But as you say, that was not always the case. And in some sense, the notion that like every single battery door on a given type of phone is exactly the same 
that's kind of mind-blowing, even if we don't necessarily think about it. It sort of is. And really, the birth of that in this country, anyway, was was all down to Henry Ford Mm. um, and the manufacture of cars. And I devote a lot of time in the middle of the book to talking about two motor cars that were effectively uh, had more or less the same lifespan. The Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, which was born in 1908 and effectively had its run until about 1927. And in Michigan, same period, the Ford Model T. And the difference between the work of these two Henrys, Henry Royce, who made the Rolls-Royce, and Henry Ford, who made the Ford Model T, is that precision, you may think the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost was the sort of acme of precision, but it wasn't because if a, they were all handmade. And if a piece didn't mm. fit, the man who was making it would simply take a file and chamfer the piece down until it did fit. But on the production lines in Michigan... All the component parts were interchangeable. So whether it was a carburetor or whether it was a transmission or whether it was a gear shift, they'd all be on the upper floor of the um, of the factory waiting to come down in hoppers to the assembly line. All the parts perfectly, precisely made and theoretically interchangeable. And if one part wasn't, if one part was out of true, then suddenly it would cause the production line to stop. It would jam it. And they'd have to be a massive investigation as to what part was wrong. It'd have to be replaced. All the workers would stand around smoking cigarettes and everything would cost a great deal of money. So the imperative to have interchangeable parts was much more important for inexpensive mass production than it was for handmade, apparently perfect machines like Rolls-Royces. So once Henry Ford had solved this problem and had made interchangeable parts and made the making of them, so key to everything, then the rest of the American manufacturing system followed suit and everyone does it today, as you say, whether it's a washing machine or an iPhone. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with journalist Simon Winchester. He's the author of the new book, The Perfectionist, How Precision Engineering Created the Modern World. When you look at the history of precision, do you think that people in the 18th century and the 19th century understood or thought that, like, we have to have more precision to advance technology to like, you know, for the world to progress or did like everything just happen like little dominoes, but people didn't really see the big picture. That's a very interesting question. And I'm not going to say that I've never considered it, but I've never been able fully to answer it. Clearly, when James Watt placed the order with John Wilkinson for 500 identical cylinders, he knew he was onto something. But I think it's early days, no one said what we need is precision. I think they it came about organically and then there was a mm-hmm. sort of an aha moment. Mm-hmm. And it occurred in that critical period from about 1780 to 1810. Those 30 years saw the true birth of this phenomenon. Right. And during that time frame, of course, you've got the French Revolution And you identify the French Revolution as related to the advance of precision in this way. So you've got all these refugees from France, right? They're trying to get out of this dangerous political climate. Uh, Many end up in England. And many people in England say, we don't like all these refugees. We do not feel safe. Um, And because of that, the demand for precision locks, they skyrocketed. Uh, You want to talk about what happened? 
I always think that's one of the most extraordinary stories, the social effects at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Prior to 17, let's say, 1776, most of the wealthy people in, let's say, England lived in the countryside and mm. they felt secure in their mansions and castles and granges and manor houses and so forth. Right. Then Industrial Revolution happened. People built factories, cities, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, grew up. And people that made their fortunes out of these factories lived near them in cities. And in London particularly, wealthy nouveau riche people were living cheek by jowl with these agitated French post-revolutionary you know, type people right. and, um, and a lot of impoverished people. And the consequence of that is that the newly rich people felt insecure. And so they built themselves sturdy houses with solid front doors and, as you mentioned, very, very complicated and allegedly unbreakable locks. Mm -hmm. And the key man in this story is a fellow called Joseph Brahma, who was an inventor of tour de force. I mean, he invented the first flush toilet, mm. he invented a machine for counting banknotes, he invented the first fountain pen, but also covering his bets, made a machine for manufacturing quills in large numbers. <laughs> so he did all of these things, but he was fascinated with the idea of locks. And he employed this chap, Maudsley, the one who I'm most interested in because he came up with the concept of flatness, to do the machining of these beautiful, impeccably made, also cylindrical, because remember that uh, John Wilkinson's first invention was a cylinder for James Watt. Mm -hmm. And so proud was Mr. Brahma of his most complex lock that he put one in the front window, there's a big bay window of his um, workshop at 124 Piccadilly, the west end of Piccadilly, and with a little notice saying, anyone that can break this lock without smashing it to bits, of course, I will pay 200 guineas, which was a great deal of money in those days. Well, that was in 1790. The years went by, people applied to break it, no one could. Wow. And it wasn't until 1851, wow. so that's now 61 years later, that it was on show, still unpicked, at the Great Exhibition in Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. And there it was with spotlit next to it, 200 golden guinea coins waiting for someone. And an American turned up and he was called Charles Hall. And so he set to work with tiny little instruments and magnifying glasses and little beams of light, little projecting things. And after 50 hours of painstaking work, there was this satisfying click and the lock opened. If we step back, um, do you think, if you look at the world since 1960, and I picked that because of the work that was done on space during the 60s in terms of going to the moon, do you think that the last like 60 or so years has changed the game in terms of precision, or is it just kind of a logical follow-on to what happened before that? I think the game is changing as we sit here today, and it started, you're quite right, in about 1960. You have to look at two fields, mechanical precision and electronic precision. Mm. In mechanical precision, we're starting, I think anyway, and this is maybe a heresy to most engineers, to see the limits. We're reaching a moment of inability to make things, and I'm talking about physical objects like pieces of metal, to such incredibly tiny tolerances and our lives, in many senses, are at stake. And a classic example was the near disaster that enveloped a, a Qantas A380, a double-decker Airbus, uh, flying from Singapore to um, Sydney in 2010. 
That was nearly brought down. One of the engines exploded because a tiny tube, about a steel tube, titanium tube actually, about the diameter of a drinking straw, wow. had been mismachined by a fraction of a millimetre hmm. by an engineer at a factory in northern England. And it broke and it caused the engine to go on fire and to explode. Hmm. Well, one wonders whether we're reaching the limits of our ability to machine pieces of metal now, whether we've reached a physical limit of mechanical precision. And similarly, in the electronic world, I mean, your average iPhone, I'm holding my iPhone 8, which incidentally is off, um, <laughs> it has a chip in it about the size of my little finger, my pinky, as Americans call it, fingernail, an A11 chip made for Apple in Taiwan, okay. has in it 4.3 billion, not million, but billion transistors. And this is a device, mm. the transistor, that was made first in 1948 or 47, about the size of your fist. Right. So they've wow. become so small. There are so many transistors. This isn't the statistic which I find so astonishing. There are more transistors in the world today than there are leaves on all the trees in all the world today. Wow. And yet they're operating at such tiny tolerances. They're down at atomic levels. But one is beginning to say, wait a minute, are we perhaps reaching limits? We know we're reaching them in mechanical precision, perhaps in, in electronic precision as well. Is that a bad thing in your mind that in mechanical or electrical precision that we're – that what if we are nearing the end? Does that mean there's going to be a slowdown like what in the, in the economy and progress – no, I think it's a point at which we pause. And this is really the the central point of, of the book, at least towards its end, which sort of guided me for most of its writing. Are we fetishizing precision? Are, is there, once again, it sounds a heretical thing to say, are we demanding too much precision? Are we worshipping it? Do we revere it? And at the same time, ignoring and forgetting craftsmanship, the imprecise, the beauty of things like wood and ceramics and lacquerware and so forth. In Japan and Korea, most notably, they give awards. The government gives awards and pensions to people that have devoted their life to making by hand things which are beautiful and imprecise, as we human beings are, as nature is. There are no straight lines in nature. And so I'm wondering whether... The possibility that we're reaching limits, physical and electronic, and that there is this movement to say, wait a minute, are we perhaps worshipping titanium more than we should and forgetting the delights of bamboo may cause us to pause. And that, in my view, is no bad thing. Simon Winchester is the author of the new book, The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Winchester told me he's sad about an event that's likely to take place in 2019, the abandoning of the physical standard for the kilogram. Why? Scientists were worried it was always slightly imprecise. In the future, the weight's going to be a formula tied to something in physics called Planck's constant. The physical platinum kilogram is safely housed in Sèvres, France, at least until it retires.
In 2014, a study appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that got a lot of attention and stirred some controversy. It was about something seemingly innocuous, friendship and how friendship comes to be. And the authors of the study noted an odd fact about humans. We are one of the only species that has friends, not relatives, not mates, but friends, random, unrelated people who we help and we like for no clear reason. But, the study's authors suggested, maybe there is a reason, even if it's somewhat invisible. In their examination of nearly 2,000 people, the researchers found that we tend to choose friends who are genetically similar to us, people who are, on average, as similar as fourth cousins. One of the authors of that study was Nicholas Christakis from Yale. All kinds of phenomena, for instance, taste in clothes or music, may depend on the tastes of other people. Christakis, a physician and sociologist, studies how much other people impact us, often in ways that we don't understand. I talked to him in 2014. So, for example, we have been able to show that seemingly very personal things, like your emotional state or your body size or how kind you are or whether you vote or not, depends on whether other people around you do that and even other people you don't know. Now, new research has added another layer to understanding the bond of friendship and how making a strong connection to another person is reflected in our brains. So we took everybody in an MBA program, so everybody in the same academic program. They live together. They take classes together. They study together. Carolyn Parkinson, an assistant professor of social psychology at UCLA, is co-author of a study trying to understand how similar our brains are to those around us. We characterized all the social relationships between them, specifically friendships. So we just got everybody, about 300 people, um, in this academic program to essentially just tell us who their friends are. Um, And then using that information, we can reconstruct their social network and figure out which pairs of people are friends, which pairs of people are friends of one another's friends, which pairs of people are three degrees of separation from each other, and so on. Once Parkinson and her colleagues had mapped these degrees of separation, they had as many people as they could sit down and watch a little TV. What exactly were they supposed to watch? Well, an unorthodox assortment of things. Oh yeah, and the whole time, researchers were keeping an eye on their brains using fMRI. So we had a pretty wide variety of things because we wanted things that would be engaging so they keep people's attention focused on the study and that people wouldn't have seen before because we didn't want friends to just watch the same things together before and then look similar. And also things that different people might respond differently to because maybe... um, They have different senses of humor, so some people might Mm -hmm. think something's really funny. Other people might fail to appreciate or detect the humor in those Mm -hmm. same things. Um, Arguments that some people might resonate with, but others might respond to with, you know, skepticism or Mm -hmm. contempt. So we had different kinds of comedy, like uh, slapstick and kind of lowbrow, sophomoric humor, as well as more wry, uh, cringe-based comedy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And also... Uh, clips from debates, things like um, debates about whether college football should be banned, also clips from CNN Crossfire, Mm. and also um, a clip from a documentary about um, a sanctuary for baby sloths. So a pretty (laughs) wide range of things. A sanctuary for baby sloths. Yeah. Right. Okay. um, Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so when the subjects in your study were watching these things about baby sloths and, you know, crossfire from CNN and stuff, um, what were you doing? How do you track what their brain is doing uh, while they're watching these things? Sure. So the participants didn't know what the study was about. We just told them that they'd be sort of having experience akin to watching TV while somebody else channel surfs. So they just saw all these okay. videos. Got it. And we carved up their brain into anatomically defined brain regions. So we have, you know, say your amygdala and my amygdala. If we mm. both participate in the study. And then just as we both watch the same series of video clips, we look at how activity in that area rises and falls over time. Right. Okay. And then give me a sense then of what you found and how people who were friends were different or perceptively uh, closer in their uh, responses than other people. Yeah. So we found that um, friends were exceptionally similar in how they responded to the videos and the similarity decreased with social distance in the network so that um, friends were more similar than people who weren't friends with each other but were friends with one another's friends, and those people were more similar than people who were three degrees of separation from one another in the network. So let's take a step back here and look at these results. When people watch this hodgepodge of random clips, the people who were friends had brains that responded very similarly. Why this happened, we don't yet know. What way is the causal arrow pointing here? Are we forming friendships with people who already think like us and see the world like us? Or as we are friends with people and as we spend time with them, do we align ourselves with them and become similar to them over time? And in what ways does this happen? So what kinds of similarities determine friendship formation and what kinds of things become more similar among friends over time? Understanding this sort of brain alignment opens up new frontiers and raises important questions about why groups of people, geographic, religious, political groups, for example, may seem to align so well. Past research has shown a few things clearly. Friends are good for our health, friends are influential, and we tend to become friends with people who are similar to us. What has also, up to now, been clear is that no matter how much you liked a friend, they were obviously an entirely different person. The starkness of that difference may not be quite so clear anymore. We've got links to all the studies we mentioned in this segment, from the study that shows our genetic similarity to our friends, to Carolyn Parkinson's look at the similarity of our brains. That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.